Welcome to the Fiona Show Tax Provision. Now that we've covered the provision process, differences between tax and accounting rules, current provision and deferred provision, we're ready to move on to the effective tax rate or the ETR and the rate reconciliation. If you missed any of those episodes, go ahead and check those out. Don't worry, this episode will be here when you get back. For those of you ready to continue on this journey to master tax provision, we're going to get right into the ETR and rate reconciliation with our guest expert, Howard Telson. Welcome back, Howard. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. In order to understand rate reconciliation, we need to wrap our heads around effective tax rate, or ETR. What is an ETR and how is it calculated? Yeah, so just to start with kind of the technical definition of an effective tax rate is basically calculated by looking at a company's total income tax expense. So the total income tax expense line that you would get on the income statement, and we talked about kind of how you arrive at that, current plus deferred tax equals the total income tax. You would take that and then you divide it by your accounting income or your income before income taxes or pre-tax book income. So when you take that total income tax expense and you divide it by your pre-tax book income, you get to this metric called an effective tax rate. And we'll kind of get into all the nuts and bolts of it, but that's kind of the core calculation of how you get to this thing called an ETR. And one thing to note, which may be a little bit confusing for kind of people new to the tax world, is you do not divide your total income tax expense by your taxable income, right? So you need to look at your pre-tax book income and you're sort of comparing two different worlds, the the tax world where you compute this income tax expense under tax rules, and then you're comparing it to your pre-tax book income, which is, of course, under accounting rules. Now, why does it matter whether we know our ETR or not? You know, when we think about a provision and when folks kind of talk about a provision or look at financial statements or are interested in income tax, generally the most important part of the provision or, or the focal point of the provision really is the effective tax rate. And the question is, you know, why is that? Why are people so laser focused on the effective tax rate? Why is that what they care most about when they're thinking about income tax and a company's financials? And really the reason is it's a measure of how efficient a company's operating from a tax perspective. So people internally and externally really look at this metric to gauge, you know, how well is a company doing from a tax perspective? So let's just start with kind of internally, who, who looks at it and who's interested in this from an internal perspective inside the company. The CFO and the CEO, you know, this is kind of the one metric they probably think most about when it comes to their tax department and their tax function. And then, of course, you know, the tax function in general, the whole tax department, they're keenly focused on the effective tax rate as a metric of, you know, how they're doing. How, how does their effective tax rate compare today versus it did yesterday? And where is it going tomorrow? So usually when people think about the effective tax rate or look at the effective tax rate, they'll look at it as a parameter of how well a company is doing on a particular quarter or a particular year. And the way they'll kind of evaluate that is they'll look at the effective tax rate for, let's just say they're, they're doing their 2020 year-end tax revision. They'll look at their effective tax rate for 2020 year-end and they'll say, okay, what was my effective tax rate in 2019? What was it in 2018? Why did it change from 2018 to 2019 to 2020? Did it go down? Are we trending down or are we trending up? And why is that? What are the drivers? What's causing these changes to the effective tax rate year over year? And then people also look quarter over quarter. So if you're in Q4, people are comparing that effective tax rate to Q3. If you're in Q3, they're comparing it to Q2. And then they're also comparing it to the quarter last year. So if you're in Q3 this year, they might be comparing it to you know Q3 last year and then also kind of Q2 this year. So 
it's a great metric that kind of really sums up a big portion of your provision, all in kind of, you know, one all-encompassing number uh, that people like to use and like to uh, compare. And that's just from an internal perspective. And externally, you know, external stakeholders, and when we talk about external stakeholders, I'm really referring to people who are looking at financial statements. So think investors or shareholders or market analysts, and then also financial statement auditors. So accounting firms who look at financial statements and the workings and calculations that go into financial statements and audit and sign off on the calculations and financial statements that they're materially correct, right? So like the big four accounting firms and other mid-sized accounting firms, they'll look at companies' financial statements and sign off on them and say, okay, these are materially correct. The public and the investing community can trust them. So when they're, when they're looking at the tax provision and the tax function, you know, specifically, one of the key metrics that they look at as well is the effective tax rate. And they'll do some kind of analytic analysis saying, you know, what's the effective tax rate uh, this quarter versus last quarter, this year versus last year. It kind of helps them focus their review in and see, you know, are there any outliers? Are there any things that are kind of throwing the effective tax rate off from an analytical perspective? So it's a great metric, you know, for for these users as well to see, once again, you know, how efficient is this company's tax operation and how does it compare to the past? So, you know, one example I like to give when we're talking about effective tax rate is, you know, not only will you want to compare it internally, if you're a company, you'll want to compare it, you know, how'd you do last quarter versus this quarter, as we just talked about, but you'll also want to compare it to other companies externally. So if you're Pepsi and you have, you know, a particular effective tax rate, you're going to want to compare that to Coke, right? You're going to want to see how are you doing versus your kind of chief competitor? How are you doing versus the industry? Uh, How are you doing versus other companies of your size? You know, other companies who have similar revenue, similar assets, how are you doing versus those companies uh, from a tax perspective? And the effective tax rate is kind of a great way to look at that. And, you know, just kind of in general, when we think about an effective tax rate, it may be a little bit obvious, but a, a low effective tax rate is the, the lower, the better, essentially. A, a low effective tax rate indicates you have an efficient income tax operation, while a higher effective tax rate may indicate that you have an inefficient income tax operation. And we'll talk about what goes into that and how you could kind of spot those potential drivers but you know, often, if a company is thinking about how do I become more tax efficient, how do I improve my tax function, how do I plan for the future from a tax perspective, oftentimes it is surrounding how do I bring my effective tax rate down? How do I reduce my effective tax rate to be potentially more in line with my peers or to be better than my peers? How do I reduce my effective tax rate to be better than I used to be, you know, to be lower than it used to be in prior quarters or prior years? And, you know, there, there's several ways that uh, companies kind of look at that. We'll get more into the exact metrics surrounding that. But just a couple of ways to kind of mention off the bat is, you know, companies will look at their tax structure and look at where they're operating across the world and how their company is kind of formulated from an organizational perspective and, and say, is this the most tax efficient that we could be? Is there any restructuring we could do or any planning we could do to kind of reduce our tax liabilities, whether that's, you know, potentially shifting income into lower tax jurisdictions or maybe merging an entity into another entity or disposing of an entity. You know, these are all things that companies look at and kind of evaluate from a tax perspective as well as a business perspective. And kind of falling right into that is transfer pricing. Of course, there's another podcast that focuses uh, very closely on transfer pricing, but transfer pricing really uh, impacts an effective tax rate very closely because where your income is located and what tax rate it's at is of course going to influence your total uh, global effective tax rate. And we'll talk more about what that means. And then also, you know, just to kind of plug another area of cross-border, another podcast we have is the R&D tax credit and tax credits as a whole. 
And these kind of directly drive your effective tax rate down. So this is another kind of important thing to think about when we're talking about planning or when we're talking about the effective tax rate is both transfer pricing and tax credits have a very large impact on both of these things. So, you know, just wanted to mention those two things as well when we're talking about effective tax rate. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. But now that we've established what an ETR is, what it means to different elements of leadership, how does it factor into the rate reconciliation? What rates are being reconciled? Yeah, so you know, we talked about a little earlier how you calculate an effective tax rate. And it's really a very simple calculation, right? You take your total income tax expense or your current and deferred tax expense, you add them together, get your total income tax expense. And you divide it by your pre-tax book income or, or your accounting income or your income before income taxes. So that sounds really simple. And at the heart of it, it is. But then companies are left to reckon with once they do that calculation, that simple division, simple math, is how do they know that that's right? How do they prove that out? How do they justify that the effective tax rate is what it is? And the way companies do that is through a rate reconciliation. And this isn't an optional exercise. This is something companies have to do and have to disclose in their financial statements in their 10K or their 10Q. They need to show, how did they get to the effective tax rate that they're at? So the way the rate reconciliation works is, let's just say you're a US company. You would start your rate reconciliation saying, if I took my accounting income, my pre-tax book income, and I multiplied it by the statutory tax rate in the US, which is 21% for corporations, what would be my tax expense then? So you would do that math and you would say, okay, I take my pre-tax book income times that 21% statutory rate, and I get to this um, basically projected tax expense at the statutory rate. And then you would go from there and you would bridge the gap and say, okay, that would be my tax expense if I'm at the statutory rate of 21%, but my effective tax rate is something else, right? Maybe it's above 21% or maybe it's below 21%. And the rate reconciliation is all about bridging the gap between your effective tax rate and your statutory tax rate. So you would look at your rate reconciliation and you would see items that move the effective tax rate up or down. And we'll get into exactly what those items are, but you would start at, you know, if you're a US corporation, you would start at 21% and then you would have various line items that kind of drive your effective tax rate up or down. So some would drive it up, some would drive it down. Some would maybe be, you know, somewhat neutral. They wouldn't have a huge impact. And then at the end of the day, you would get to your effective tax rate once you take into account and kind of look at all the items that really influence your, your tax rate and kind of drive that statutory rate up or down. So when we really get down to it, why do rate reconciliations matter? That's a great question. And, you know, I, I think I was starting to allude to the fact that 
you know, you're looking, the rate reconciliation essentially is looking at statutory rate, you know, the U.S. rate. If we're talking about the U.S., we're talking about a U.S. corporate tax rate of 21%. And then its job is to really reconcile, you know, it's kind of in, right in the name, right? Rate, rate reconciliations. It's to reconcile how you get from that statutory rate to your effective tax rate. So it really shows what is driving your effective tax rate. And often these kind of items are, are simply called rate drivers. So what are your rate drivers? What's moving your tax rate up or what's moving it down? And when you're looking at a tax footnote, you know, especially for someone outside of the company, you know, an external party like an investor, shareholder, market analyst, this is a great way to get insight into a company, into a company's tax operations, because you could really see their effective tax rate, you know, is, is whatever number it is. But how, how did they get there? And the rate reconciliation really tells you exactly how they got there. In financial statements, it's not incredibly detailed. Uh, companies tend to lump, you know, rather uh, several items together and only show kind of the most material items broken out separately. But it's still a great way to get gain a picture and gain insight into a company and how their effective tax rate is moving. If it's going lower than their statutory rate, you'll see what's driving it lower. Um, you know, is it stock compensation? Is it a foreign rate differential? Is it a tax credit? If it's higher than the statutory rate, you'll see what's driving it higher. Is it state tax liability? Is it permanent differences? So you could kind of see the makeup of what's driving the effective tax rate, you know, all in the tax footnote. And, you know, of course, companies have much more details surrounding this. You know, if it's an internal calculation, they have generally many lines that kind of support what's driving the rate, what's bringing it up or down. In a footnote, they kind of compress a lot of that and bring a lot of that together with less detail. But it's still a great way to see what's driving my rate? If I look at my total tax expense and I divide it by my accounting income, as we said, is kind of the definition of the effective tax rate, I get to a number. And then how do I bridge the gap between that and the statutory rate? And that's really what the rate reconciliation is all about. And because you really need your, your total tax revision, your current plus your deferred tax, and you need that accounting income locked down to calculate this, and you need to understand the rate drivers that go in to kind of bridge the gap from the accounting income to your ultimately your effective tax rate, this is really the last step kind of in the provision process. So right before you basically book your journal entries and kind of complete your footnote, you would do your rate reconciliation. So it would be after you finish your current and deferred, you would go ahead and, and come over to the rate rec and kind of complete that. And practically, it also serves as a great check exercise because as I mentioned, the effective tax rate calculation is actually really simple. You just divide your total income tax expense divided by your pre-tax book income. However, you know, this is all about proving it out. The rate reconciliation is all about proving out that the effective tax rate is truly accurate and you could really explain it. So, you know, practically, tax folks really use this as a prove-out exercise as well to kind of make sure that there's nothing in the provision that doesn't make sense that is, is causing strange results. Rate reconciliation actually has this; these type of items fall out often. So when companies are doing a rate rec, oftentimes there's some kind of mistake, just like a, a calculation mistake or a formula error or something happened in the provision that's incorrect. A lot of times it will fall out in the rate reconciliation. So, you know, from a practical perspective, it is a nice checkpoint. Right. So as you explained, there are factors which can impact the rate reconciliation called rate drivers. And these are items that drive the effective tax rate up or down. Let's drill into that a little bit further. And maybe we start with what drives the rate up. Can you provide an example of that? 
Yeah, so there's rate drivers that bring the effective tax rate up or down. And we can start with one that brings it up. And oftentimes, these ones that we're talking about in the concept of bringing the effective tax rate up or, or down kind of work in the inverse fashion as well. The first one to kind of touch upon is, is permanent book-to-tax differences or permanent M1 items. And if it's an unfavorable permanent difference, if it's an item that is book expense, that is not a tax deduction, right? So it's unfavorable. Or the other way, you know, if it could be an income item, you have taxable income, but you don't have book income. So, right, you have more tax liability than you do um, an expense on your financial statements. This is an unfavorable item. So this would be basically right in the name. This is essentially a bad thing for tax purposes. You're driving your income up, you're having less expense, and therefore, ultimately, you have more tax. If we just recall, you know, kind of circle back to the original definition of an M1 item, which we talked about on a previous podcast, original definition of a book-to-tax difference, if you recall, that could be temporary or permanent. And this type of permanent one item is really an expense for accounting that will never be deductible for tax, you know, or once again, an income item, an inclusion for tax that maybe never is an inclusion for book purposes. So it's stuff that's going to bump up your tax expense if it's an unfavorable item, or of course, it could be the inverse as well. But it's things that are never going to reverse. It's things that are never going to even out over the course of time between tax and book, which is different than a temporary difference, which is only timing. You have an income item one year for book and not for tax. But then in the future year, you have that same income item for tax and not for book or vice versa with an expense. You have an expense, a deduction for book in one year and nothing for tax. But then in the future, year, you have that expense or deduction for tax and not for book. So it evens out over the course of time for a temporary difference. But for a permanent difference, it doesn't. It's permanent in nature. It never reverses. So here we're talking about unfavorable permanent differences. And, and that includes things like meals or entertainment or fines and penalties. In a previous episode, we gave an example of a penalty levied against BP, right, for an oil spill. That, that was a huge amount, you know, about over $5 billion. And since it was a penalty, for gap accounting purposes, for book purposes, they got to put that as an expense, on their income statement. So it was just a normal expense on their income statement. They had a you know, cash outlay. It was, a, it was a typical expense. So they booked that on their accounting. However, for tax, it was non-deductible because the tax rules say that if you had a government fine or penalty, you cannot deduct that you know, for, for policy purposes, essentially. They don't want to incentivize this type of behavior. So they're saying that item is non-deductible. So an item like this, an unfavorable permanent difference as mentioned, it's, it's not like a timing difference where you're going to get that item for book and you're going to get that item for tax. That item is only happening once for book or tax and never reverses. So there's no deferred tax accounting on it. It only impacts your current provision. And because it only impacts your current provision and not your deferred provision, there's no netting. It doesn't net out to zero like, like a current and deferred item would, like a timing item would, where you have a current impact today and the deferred impact tomorrow. So it nets to zero if it's a timing item. On the permanent side, it doesn't net to zero. So it only impacts one side of the coin. It only impacts the current side. So therefore, this item drives your effective tax rate. This permanent item, since it only impacts your current and not your deferred, it drives your effective tax rate. And here, in the case of an unfavorable permanent item, it would drive your effective tax rate up. So, you know, that's just one example of something in the rate reconciliation, a rate driver, that you would start your statutory rate, you would factor in these unfavorable permanent items, and then you would drive that effective tax rate up because of that. 
Well, what about another rate driver? I understand state tax expense increases the effective tax rate as well. Why is that? Yeah, so this is another great example of an unfavorable rate driver. And why does state tax expense kind of drive the effective tax rate? And really the reason is your starting point in your rate reconciliation is your federal statutory tax rate. So in the U.S. for a corporation, that's 21%. So it doesn't take into account state tax expense. So therefore, you need to layer in your state tax expense exposure, and that's going to essentially increase your effective tax rate. So, you know, fairly simple idea there, but the actual art of calculating the state tax expenses is a little bit more complex because you have to kind of take into account your whole state tax portfolio, you know, all the states that you have activity in that you may have a tax liability in. You need to kind of factor all of that together. And typically, you know, state tax expense is just one line item on a rate reconciliation. So it includes kind of everything that's going in there from a state tax perspective. And just one kind of uh, thing to practically note is that on the federal side of the house, under federal tax return and your federal current provision, you get a deduction for your state tax expense. So on the rate reconciliation, usually the way it works is you'll see that the gross state tax expense or the total state tax expense, and then you will see an amount that is net of a federal benefit that takes into account the fact that that's this state tax exposure is reduced by the fact that you get this benefit under federal return. So usually state tax expense will be shown on a rate reconciliation as net of federal benefit. Now, outside of state tax, what about foreign tax? How does the fact that foreign tax rates differ from the U.S. play into this equation? Yeah, so when we think about, you know, most companies nowadays really are global companies. And when we think about a U.S. headquartered multinational company, you know, they may have operations all around the world. And of course, different countries assess different corporate tax rates. So the U.S. has a 21% rate, but Ireland has a 12.5% rate, and Spain has a 25% rate, and Germany has a 30% rate. So what companies need to do is they need to reckon with these differences in foreign tax rates, and they do that within the rate reconciliation to kind of prove out their effective tax rate. So let's just say that a company is in a lot of foreign jurisdictions with higher tax rates than the U.S., and you know we could go back to my example of Spain, 25% or Germany at 30%. If we're thinking about these type of countries with effective statutory tax rates higher than the U.S., we need to bridge the gap in our rate reconciliation from how this income is taxed in a foreign country at a higher statutory rate, at, you know, let's just say 30%, than it is in the U.S. when it's only taxed at 21% on a federal basis. So the question is, how do you bridge this gap? How do you account for the fact that these countries have different statutory tax rates? And In the rate reconciliation, you do that through what's called a foreign rate differential. So you say, okay, I have income in, let's just say in Germany, and I would kind of do a calculation and say, what would that income be taxed at if the income is purely taxed at the U.S. federal rate of 21%? And I would kind of get to a number. And then I would say, okay, well, what's that income actually taxed at when I taxed at the German tax rate of 30%? And then I would get to a number and I would basically subtract those two numbers from each other and say, what's the difference? What's the difference between if I tax affected this amount at the U.S. rate versus if I tax affected this amount at the foreign rate? And that essentially is the foreign rate differential. So if you're in a jurisdiction or you know a group of jurisdictions that has a higher statutory tax rate than the U.S., 
your foreign tax uh, differential is going to be unfavorable. It's going to drive your effective tax rate up, which I think, you know, makes pretty intuitive sense because, you know, you're just in a higher tax rate jurisdiction. So you need to pay essentially more tax. You're going to have a higher effective tax rate due to being in these higher jurisdictions. So that's really what the foreign rate differential is. And it's a very important metric to multinational companies. And when we think about, you know, these multinational companies who, who have a really low effective tax rate, and we'll get into more you know, about what drives the effective tax rate down. But when we think about the companies that have a really low effective tax rate, or even, you know, we think about the reverse side, the companies that have a high effective tax rate, oftentimes it is because of this foreign rate differential. So in the U.S., their operations are pretty standard. They start at the 21%. They, don't, may, they may not have a ton of adjustments kind of moving their effective tax rate up or down. But then because of the nature of their foreign operations, it could be very material to their effective tax rate, either moving it down or up depending on, you know, their foreign income mix and where that income is located. And, you know, like I mentioned before, a lot of that comes back to the transfer pricing, right? So your, your transfer pricing policies and how your transfer pricing is set up has, has a huge influence on the effective tax rate. And really the place you see that is in this foreign rate differential. I was about to say I was having some flashbacks to our other podcast recordings. And then what about the return to provision, which can be both unfavorable or favorable? Can you tell us about how this may impact the effective tax rate as well? Yeah, so just to do a quick kind of refresher of return to provision, let's remember that companies are doing their provision. Let's just say it's a calendar year company. Let's just say it's 12-31-2020 year end. So a company's doing their provision shortly after that year ends, at the beginning of 2021, January or February, they're submitting their financial statements and, and issuing them at the beginning of 2021. And then several months go by, and then the company does their tax return. And on the provision, you know, it's not that long after year end, and some items, companies try to get as close as they can to 100% accurate, but some items will inevitably kind of fall by the wayside. Maybe they just aren't that material where the company didn't have you know, the time to kind of complete their full analysis surrounding certain items. So what will happen is several months later, when a company does their tax return, which includes you know, a lot of the same items as a provision, which generally you know, it's a lot like the current provision and current year activity. So what companies will do on the tax return is they'll kind of finalize a lot of these items. And they'll say, you know, this may have been a, a bit of an estimate at the provision, and we're going to finalize it on the return. And what happens is you know, once it's finalized on the return, then the question is, how do you account for that um, from an accounting perspective? How do you account for that in your financial statements? And typically, as long as the item is not hugely material, and if it is hugely material, you may need to kind of restate your financial statements, or it may cause you know very big issues with your auditors and the invest community in general. But let's just say it's not that material of an item. If it's generally immaterial, you could book it through actually this difference between your provision and your return from 2020, you could book it through on your 2021 financial statement. So you could book it through on your next set of financial statements issued, you know, in the next year. So basically it's a way for companies to not have to deal with, you know, basically restating their financial statements every time there's a difference between the provision and return. If it's immaterial, they could just run it through the next year's financial statements. And that's really the heart of what a return to provision is, you know, at its core. So now the question is, okay, you know, if we, if we know what a return provision is, well, how does that impact my rate? How does that impact the rate reconciliation? And how does that factor into, you know, whether or not it's a rate driver? And when we think about a return to provision, just thinking about kind of the current provision, there's various items that could be different between a provision or a return, right? Your pre-tax book income could be different. Your permanent items could be different. Your temporary items could be different. Your credits could be different. So 
whether or not that this return to provision impacts your rate reconciliation depends on the item that's being trued up. So if it's your pre-tax book income or permanent M1 item or tax credit, it would impact your rate because it, it only impacts kind of that current side of the calculation and not the deferred. But if it's a temporary item that's being trued up, you know, just a, a regular temporary item like an accrual or a reserve or depreciation, generally that would not impact your rate reconciliation because you're going to have an impact on your current and you're going to have an impact on your deferred tax. And both of those are going to offset and essentially go down to zero because the rate reconciliation, we've got to remember, is looking at total tax expense and that total tax expense takes into account the current and the deferred. So this return to provision, if it's an unfavorable return to provision item related to either pre-tax book income or a permanent M1 item or a tax credit, it's going to drive the effective tax rate. So if it's an unfavorable return to provision related to a permanent M1 or a or pre-tax book income or tax credits where you originally thought you had more tax credits on your prior provision and then your return you had less, so now it's unfavorable, all of these would drive your effective tax rate up. So that's kind of one way the return provision kind of factors in. And we'll talk in, in a moment about, you know, how it could possibly go the other way as well. And that does in the larger sense streamline things. In addition to the unfavorable permanent items, state tax, foreign tax rate differences, and the return to provision, are there any other notable rate drivers that could push the ETR up? Yeah. So, you know, one other one uh, to mention, which is very important for, for many companies is valuation allowance. So when a company either increases or initially records a valuation allowance, that will actually drive the effective tax rate up as well. And then the question becomes, you know, what is a valuation allowance? And this really kind of deserves a whole, a whole separate episode. But basically what a valuation allowance is, it basically takes a company's deferred tax asset, and a company will take a look at their deferred, their deferred tax asset and say, can I realize this in the future? Am I going to be able to use this asset in the future? Is it more likely than not that I'm going to be able to benefit from using this asset in the future? So if the answer is yes, then they don't have to do anything. They could just have that deferred tax asset sitting on their balance sheet and they're going to use it in the future. So it's a good asset. And you know they just kind of carry on in their merry way. But the problem is once a company answers no to those questions, if they say, you know, it's not more likely than not that they're going to be able to use that deferred tax asset, if they don't think that asset's going to be able to give them any benefit in the future, right? Any tax benefit in the future, well, then that's an issue. And the question is, well, how do you account for that? How do you account for that on a company's, you know, balance sheet and financial statements? If you have this deferred tax asset, that really isn't worth anything because you're not going to be able to use it in the future. And the way you account for that is through a valuation allowance. So this valuation allowance would essentially offset uh, you know, all or a portion of a deferred tax asset to bring it down. And you know, usually the, the place that, that you see this is with a loss company. So a deferred tax asset basically represents a future tax benefit, right? So you could have a, a net operating loss carry forward that you could use in the future to offset taxable income, or you could have book to tax adjustment that was unfavorable in the past, and you're going to get that favorable flip in the future. So you didn't get a deduction yesterday, but you're going to get a deduction tomorrow, right? So that's generally what a deferred tax asset is, you know, some kind of carry forward of a tax attribute or a future tax deduction. But the question is, you know, if you're, if you're a loss company and you're not paying tax and you don't expect to pay tax in the future because you expect to keep generating losses, well, then what good are these deferred tax assets going to do for you? You're not going to be able to use the net operating losses because you're already in a loss. 
you're not going to be able to take these future tax deductions because, well, they're already in a loss, so they're not really going to help you. Your tax liability in the future is already going to be zero, so you can't really drive that down any further. So when you're in this instance, and you know it's more likely than not that you're not going to be able to recognize all or a portion of this deferred tax asset, you need to reserve for it, and you need to put up this valuation allowance. And just the act of increasing or putting up this valuation allowance drives your effective tax rate up. And you know it's because it drives the total tax expense up because you're not going to get this benefit in the future. That was kind of uh, you know a favorable benefit. Instead, this is kind of an unfavorable item where you're increasing or establishing this valuation allowance and saying one of my assets on my balance sheet is really not worth as much as originally we said it was, or could be potentially fully worthless. So you know, valuation allowance is a complex topic, and we could really drill into that on a future episode. But that's just kind of giving you. I love a level overview of you know what it is and how exactly it factors into the to the rate reconciliation, ultimately your effective tax rate. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. So let's give everybody some good news. What about what drives the ETR down? Presumably, it would be the inverse of some of the above items. But can you provide more details as to what moves the rate downward? Yes, I I think you said it right there. You know, let's think about some of the items that we talked about earlier. So we talked about permanent differences, right? We talked about unfavorable permanent differences, but we could have the reverse too. We could have favorable permanent differences or an item that's deductible for tax, but that's never deductible for book. Or you have income for book that's never income for tax. And that would be a favorable permanent M1 item that would drive the effective tax rate down, right? You also have a situation where our foreign tax rate differential, we talked about how it could go either way. You could be in jurisdictions that drive your effective tax rate up, like we talked about you know, Germany or Spain, Or you could be in jurisdictions that drive your effective tax rate down. Let's just take Ireland for an example. You know, it has a 12.5% statutory rate. So that is less than the U.S. federal statutory rate of 21%. We could even take the U.K., which has a federal statutory rate of 19%. That's less than the U.S. rate of 21%. So if you're doing your rate reconciliation, you're starting at that 21% rate, this 21% statutory rate in the U.S., but then you have foreign income in these lower tax jurisdictions, right? That's just going to drive your effective tax rate down when you kind of reconcile that out. And you kind of say certain income is taxed at a lower rate. And once again, that a lot of that comes back to transfer pricing. You know, where are you putting your income? How are you setting up your multinational structure? And where is that income being sourced? So those are a couple of ways. Another way is coming back to the valuation allowance. 
we talked about setting up evaluation allowance or increasing evaluation allowance and how that's, you know, really kind of a bad thing and how that drives your, your tax expense up because you're not getting that future tax benefit, that future tax asset. But you could also do the reverse. You could actually, you know, if let's just say you have a valuation allowance that's set up because it's more likely than not that you're not going to be able to recognize these deferred tax assets. But then at some point in the future, that pattern switches. And all of a sudden, the company's doing well, they're making money, they're out of a loss position. And now all of a sudden, they're able to recognize these deferred tax assets. And you know they realize they're going to be able to recognize these assets in the future. So what they do is they perform an analysis. And once again, we get into you know, in the future into the nuts and bolts of all this. But they perform an analysis and they say, okay, I no longer need evaluation allowance. So therefore, I'm going to release it. And how does that release work is it basically drives the effective tax rate down. Because you're sort of reversing what you did before, which was driving it up. Now you're driving it down. And, you know, it, it really comes back to the journal entries that are kind of corresponding with, with these movements of driving it up or down. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, this release of evaluation allowance will bring that effective tax rate down. It will be one of these rate drivers that um, is actually a good thing. And that's why the, value, the concept of valuation allowance, it's a little bit nebulous and kind of difficult to grasp. And it, it does incorporate judgment. And it's one of the things that auditors really focus on because it is a way to potentially manipulate earnings. You could actually potentially time these things to your advantage. You could time the release of your valuation allowance to a point where you want that, that boost and that lower effective tax rate. You know, obviously, we talked about the less tax expense you have, the higher your income is. The less your effective tax rate is, the higher your income is. So if a company wanted that boost and they wanted to release that valuation allowance to bring down their effective tax rate, they may be able to kind of potentially just say it's in this particular year where I need to release it because my facts changed to get that income boost. And that's why auditors really hone in on that and really want to understand exactly what fact changed we need to release, you know, or put up a valuation allowance. It's a very sensitive kind of analysis and one that companies and auditors alike are really focused on because of potential earnings manipulation surrounding that. Just one more item that you know would bring your rate down as well that we we talked about a little bit, but it would be tax credits. So you know, much like the R and D tax credit, which we mentioned before, you know, which of course we have a whole separate podcast on. This is a dollar for dollar reduction in your tax liability. So it's bringing down earned tax provision essentially, and assuming that you're able to use all that tax credit and you're not you know limited or have to carry any forward, it's not really touching your deferred tax provision. So therefore, it's, you know, it's a one-sided impact just on the current. It's not impacting your deferred, and therefore, it's driving your effective tax rate down. It's reducing your total overall you know, tax expense and, and total effective tax rate. So you know, those are the main ones that, that really bring the effective tax rate down and you know, kind of the good news you know, of sorts on how you go from statutory rate in the U.S. of 21% to actually potentially a lower effective tax rate. It would be through you know, all or some, or some of these items, really. And that is a wealth of information. So just a quick summary here. When we're talking about rate reconciliation in this specific context, we're talking about reconciling the effective tax rate, or ETR, with the federal statutory rate. And the reason these two may be different has to do with rate drivers, which Howard just went into great detail over. These include favorable or unfavorable permanent M1 differences, foreign income taxed at higher or lower rates, as well as all applicable state tax expense, changes in valuation allowance, and factoring in tax credits like R&D, which can drive the ETR down. And why is all of this so important? 
because the ETR is the best measuring stick of how well a company is actually doing when it comes to their tax expense. And if there are big differences between ETR and the federal statutory rate, it's going to raise some eyebrows if you haven't shown your work, so to speak. Wrapping up here, Howard, uh, we've been talking about the year-end provision mostly today. Do the differences between the annual and the quarterly provision affect rate reconciliation? Yeah, so, you know, I think we're going to get into a lot around quarterly in a future episode, but, you know, just at a high level, generally computing the quarterly tax provision under what's called a FIN 18 approach or an estimated annual effective tax rate approach is much simpler than the annual side. And generally, you don't need to do a full calculation of either your current provision or your deferred uh, roll forward. Some companies do, but generally you don't have to. And what you'll focus on on the quarterly side is you'll focus on a forecast. So you'll actually forecast your annual effective tax rate, and then you'll apply it to kind of actual year-to-date results to compute your tax expense. And as I mentioned, this is called the estimated annual effective tax rate, or some folks will call it the EAETR. So, you know, the question is, what's the difference in the rate reconciliation between quarterly and annual? And to be honest, you know, it really not that much. You would still be starting at your statutory tax rate, and you would still get down to what your effective tax rate looks like. The biggest difference, though, is generally, you know, on the quarters, you're looking at your estimated annual effective tax rate and your pre-tax book income that you're looking at is your estimated annual pre-tax book income. So it's really hinges around that the quarters are all based around estimated annual numbers, while, of course, the annual is based around actual year to date numbers, you know, for the annual period. You know, the biggest difference is quarters are really focused on estimates and then annuals is the actual side. Calculating your tax provision, whether quarterly or annually, involves some educated guesswork in computing complex items in a very short time frame. And we've heard why ETR is so important. So what then is the best way to make sure the calculations, such as the rate reconciliation, are done carefully and accurately? The rate reconciliation, really at its heart, is a check exercise. At the end of the day, the result of the rate reconciliation, the total tax expense that you get to in the rate reconciliation needs to tie to the total tax expense that you get on your current plus deferred provisions. So you add up your current and deferred provision, you get to your total tax expense. That needs to equal the total tax expense that you see in your rate rec. However, you know, sometimes when companies are doing this, especially in Excel, but even in some software on the market, they don't tie. So their, their rate reconciliation, which is, you know, at its heart is this check exercise, you know, meant to be useful to kind of explain what's driving the rate up and down, but also to kind of prove out your total tax expense. Sometimes that doesn't agree to your total tax expense per the current and deferred provision. And you may wonder, how could that be? How could this check schedule not check out? And it really comes back to the provision process in general and kind of the time crunch that companies are under and often the process that they use. But when you're working under like such a time crunch with these provision calculations, especially as we've been learning, it's a complicated process and you're trying to do this complicated process in a really limited amount of time. So, you know, generally I would advocate for not trying to do this in Excel, which is just going to you know, lead to a lot of potential manual error, formula errors, broken links. And this is kind of where a lot of companies get in trouble and where they're check schedule or rate reconciliation ends up breaking down and not actually proving out to their total provision is because they're doing this manually in Excel and, you know, a fact changed maybe from last year, they have a new entity or new accounts and something wasn't accounted for properly within their Excel model. 
And then all of a sudden, you know, your rate reconciliation is out by some amount and it's difficult to find. And I've seen companies that kind of go around in circles trying to find some amount that's a difference between their rate rec and their total provision. And that really just shouldn't be the case because this rate reconciliation could be an automated schedule. You know, we talked about all the elements and the rate drivers that go into it, but all these elements are really pulling from other parts of the provision, you know, other parts of the current and deferred provision. So there's no reason that it can't just be a fully automated schedule. And that's really where, you know, AI and software could come in and really prove this out on a company's behalf where a company really could use this as a check schedule. It doesn't actually need to do any work on it. They could just review it, make sure that it makes sense, see what their rate drivers are, you know, look at it from an analytical perspective, seeing what, what, what was the rate last year? What was the rate last quarter? What's the rate this year, this quarter? And kind of comparing that, comparing it to their peers and seeing, you know, how did the effective tax rate move? And then, you know, if it's automatically proved out to their total tax provision, they don't have to worry about, you know, trying to find uh, some dollar amount that they're out by that it doesn't reconcile by, which, you know, I can't tell you the amount of times that I've seen companies kind of running in circles doing that exercise. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You you know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. Thank you, Howard, for joining us in this very informative discussion. If you like this podcast, you're going to love the other shows in Cross-Border Solutions Tax Podcast Suite. That's the Fiona Show R&D Tax Credit and the Fiona Show Transfer Pricing. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's the Fiona Show Tax Provision, and we'll keep you up to date on the latest in tax provision. I'm your host, Matthew DeMello. John Alex Busey is our audio producer. Stephen Markow is our associate producer. Mary Lynn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We'll catch you next week. Music.